Well, one of the things that um, I suppose links California with uh, our part of the world is, um, is the sea, is stunning kind of coastal towns and uh, seascapes and things like that. One of the uh, interesting things to note um, in, the, in the ancient world, the ancient mindset was that the sea, the, the waters of the sea, I'm, I'm going to be talking a lot about water today. It's interesting Gordon picked up on that theme because it's a, it's a frequently used metaphor in the Gospel of John. But the, the waters of the sea in the ancient mindset were seen as a place of chaos. And that's completely understandable. The seas are unpredictable. They, they threw up un, uh, surprising and odd-looking creatures. Weather systems caused the seas to misbehave. People died in the seas. And to the ancient mindset, the sea was a place to beware, to ask the gods and God to protect them from. And even at the, the very start of the biblical story, we can contrast this with what God is doing as he creates a, an inland garden, Eden, and he creates Adam and Eve, and he says, this is the safe place of life and abundance where you and I will dwell together, and you will become all that I have purposed for you. And your job, mankind, is to extend the peace and the security of this garden outwards into the world. Subdue and cultivate the world outside this little garden city that we've got going on here, outside of Eden. Make the whole earth like Eden by bringing order and peace and making sure that others come in to dwell here with me rather than being outside in the chaos where there are thorns and thistles and, and disorder where the sea is. And so even at the, the very start of the Bible story, you get this you see this separation in the ancient mindset that the, the city is good, the garden city is good, inland is good, Eden is good because Eden is the place where God is and we can be with God. But the sea, the sea is bad, that's outside. The sea is violent and it's unpredictable. All the things that Eden isn't. And the sea swallows people up away from the tranquility of Eden. This is a kind of a, an ancient mindset that was held. Now, Park all of that for just a moment. Put a pin in that. I wanna, we'll come back to that later. But uh, I want you to just have that background information for uh, some stuff we'll look at later on. But let's, let's read today's passage. This is uh, John 7. We're working through the book of John, if you're uh, a guest here today. We're in John 7 today. Uh, and this is, if you've got a church Bible, on page 1071. Feel free to um, page there. It'll come up on the screen as well. And I'm going to read it in a couple of chunks just to explain it as we go, and then we'll return to what I've already talked about to see how it applies to us for daily living. So John 7, verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. So you go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. 
after he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, well, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Okay, so Jesus and the disciples are hanging out in Galilee, and the Feast of Tabernacles draws near. This is a major feast that will be celebrated in Jerusalem, in the temple, and the disciples say, well, let's go. And as we go, Jesus, you can do some of your miracle-making stuff so that the world can see that you are the Christ. It all makes complete sense. But Jesus isn't out to just make a name for himself or to become a celeb. He has a specific mission. He's come on behalf of the Father. He only does what the Father tells him to do, and the point isn't simply to make a name for himself. He's not come to entertain people and to gather a crowd for the sake of it. He's, he's come to call out a people, to announce a new kingdom that's come and a new way of meeting with God for all people and to love them and to know them and to lead them out of their deathly ways of living and into a way of life in which they follow him and live for him and love him and know relationship with him. If I say nothing else today, you should know that if you're a Christian, that's, that's what he's done for you, Gateway. He's called us out, and he's breathed life into us that we might follow him. And so he says, no, I, I won't go to the festival with you just yet, because my time hasn't yet come. And amongst other things, he's making the point that God's agenda can't be kind of strong-armed or dictated to by the world. Actually, that's, that's a really important thing for, for us just to clock. Our, our world... Our culture is a little bit like that. It says, believe what we believe and believe it now. That's what the world says, what it demands. We know this. We often talk about this stuff here. There is immense cultural pressure on the church today to conform to the agendas and the prevailing thought life of the world. And, and Jesus models outstanding mature leadership to us in this story, not 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 your will, not your agenda. I have a plan. My time hasn't yet come. There's some important contemporary relevance to us here in an immature, tantruming world, and we need to remember this and settle it in our hearts and lock it in there that our Jesus, the head of the church, the head of our lives, has a plan. And we need to make sure that we keep step with him. Even as we feel these cultural pressures, the noise in our ears saying, here, come, come, look, come this way. We need to train ourselves to keep looking up to Jesus in those moments, to stand firm in Christ, and to remember that through it all and throughout the ages, he is doing something. He is calling out a people as his own, a people who will say yes to him and to not be distracted by the lure of the world and the cultural pressures that confront us that demand that we conform to them. Nothing is out of his control and nothing has escaped his plan. The American pastor Matt Chandler often says this and I love it, he says there's only one story, it's the Christ story. 
And every other story, every life, is just a sub-story of that story. Nothing is out of the control of Jesus. And nothing is out of control in our world. And his plan is to gather you and to bring you into full maturity in him. So it's important to just log that. And so Jesus says, no, my time hasn't yet come. You guys go to the festival. And so they do. And it says that sometimes afterwards, he went anyway, but in secret. And so that's how we come to this point in the story, as the Feast of Tabernacles is about to begin in AD 32 or 33 or thereabouts. Now, it's really important, if you're going to understand this passage, to understand the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's been celebrated uh, every year for thousands of years. Jews still celebrate it today, uh, every year in the autumn. It's sometimes called the Feast of Booths, or Sukkos. And it's a, it's a wonderful feast, and it's, it's celebrated for very good reason. The Feast of Tabernacles goes back to the time when God released Israel from slavery in Egypt under Moses. And uh, if you know the story, you'll know that, that God defeats Pharaoh, who sets himself up as a god over the Israelites. God warns him, and then he smites him, and then he frees his people from Egypt. But there follows this 40-year period between them leaving Egypt and arriving in the land that God had promised and prepared for them. And so for 40 years, much of books two to five of the Bible are, are all about this, how Israel lives and travels in the desert, in the wilderness, en route to this land that God has promised them. And in this wilderness, for 40 years, they will live in tents or tabernacles, as our young people will be in the rain this week in Norwich. And God will dwell with them in that place, in, right in their midst, as God grows up this kind of baby nation of people into a mighty nation of worshippers, Israel, who will follow him and love him and whom he can love. And that's exactly what happens. And this 40-year this period is packed with stories of both rebellion against God and disease and plague and idolatry. And it's also packed with incredible stories of God's nearness to his people, daily appearing to them as a huge pillar of cloud and, and leading them and providing for them. Every day, for 40 years, he provides bread from heaven and fresh quail for them to eat. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is a commemoration of the time when Israel lived in tabernacles, in tents, across the wilderness with God. And it celebrated God's faithfulness to them in providing for them every day for 40 years without any lack. It's a really wonderful celebration. And a bit like the other big temple festivals that we've looked at over recent months, a bit like the, the Passover. The, the Feast of Tabernacles was held every year in the giant temple in Jerusalem, and Jews from around the globe would attend this festival to attend, to, uh, to celebrate tabernacles and to celebrate God, and to remember his provision to his people. And there were two kind of highlights to the festival. The first one was the lighting of lamps, a bit like uh, the one in this picture here, which would light up the whole temple compound and the whole city, and, and it would point to the temple and kind of make the point that God is the light of the world. His people are the light of the world. And the second one, which is really important for our purposes today, was the water pouring ceremony. 
Let's read what, uh, what happens during the water-pouring ceremony in our story. So we're going to skip to John, 37, uh, sorry, John 7, 37 uh, to 44. It says there, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified, been to the cross. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Okay, let me, uh, let me just flesh out this scene. The, the water-pouring ceremony, which is what we're talking about here, worked like this. Every day, for the seven days of this enormous festival, a golden urn was filled with water from a pool down the road and was carried back to the temple in a procession led by the chief priest. And as the procession approached the gates of this gigantic temple compound, somebody would blast the shofar, the ram's horn, the ram's kind of uh, horn. That's exactly what a shofar sounds like, by the way, if you haven't heard one before. I've been practicing that all week. Shofar was uh, usually sounded on, on joyful occasions, so everyone would be focused on this golden urn and the priests carrying it, and there would have been great celebrating, and then a choir would follow after them, and they'd be singing the Hallel, which uh, we'd know is Psalm 113 to 118, and as the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim, tens of thousands of men would raise a piece of citrus fruit, raise their oranges into the air to give thanks to God for the provision of harvest. It would have been amazing. And they would shout out three times, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. It's a huge thing. And then the water from the golden urn would have been poured out at the top of the temple steps into silver bowls so that everyone could see it. And it would be poured out by the priest before the Lord and the watching worshippers, and it would flow down the stairs. And this ceremony was meant to bring to mind God's provision of water for the Israelites in the wilderness, and also it was meant to point forward to the day when God would pour out His Spirit on all believers in the last days, and the Messiah of God would appear to rescue his people. We don't really do festivals like this anymore. We've got the air festival in a few weeks. That's going to be great. But it's not like the Feast of Tabernacles. That was spectacular. In, uh, in the desert, there was an episode where the Israelites grumbled because they had no water. And God tells Moses, their leader, to go and strike a rock with his staff. And water comes out in provision for the people. So this, this ceremony was meant to symbolically meant to represent this coming messianic age in which streams of living water would metaphorically come from a, a sacred rock that would flow over the whole earth. 
And so the priests pour out the water, and everyone would have been thinking about God's provision to them through the ages, and also thinking about the day when he would send his Messiah to pour himself out for the whole world. And it's into this exact moment, the high point, the climax, that this wandering rabbi, Jesus, steps out of the crowd, and he cries out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has says, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Can you imagine that? I wonder what it would have been like in that moment. It's like the the closing ceremony of the Olympics or something. All the eyes of the world are on this moment of celebration. Everyone is following the script. And then Jesus steps out and cries above the crowd and makes this incredible statement. What's he up to? In, uh, In Isaiah 55, verse 1, a verse that would have been kind of burned into the hearts and the minds of first century Jews. Every person at the festival would likely have known this verse. A famous verse of scripture written hundreds of years earlier. God says this to his people who at the time are battle-weary exiles. They're tired and they're spiritually downcast. And he says, come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters And you who have no money, come anyway. Come, buy, and eat. God promises that all who come to him, all who are thirsty, all who are broken, all who are needy, come to him. Come to the waters and drink freely. Even if you have nothing to offer, come, drink. That's the promise hanging over the people of God for centuries. And here Jesus is saying, I am that water. I am the fulfillment of what God has promised through the ages and that you see before you the the symbolism of God's provision poured out for you in this water ceremony. I am that provision for you. I am that water for your thirsty soul. And all that you see before you in this ceremony, the promise of a day when God will once again come to you and pour out his spirit on you and draw close to you, That day is now, because I am God come to you, and I announce a new day. And in this day, the Spirit of God will be poured out on you and your children, just like this water that you're looking at has just been poured out down the steps before you, and it will satisfy your deepest thirst, and it will flow from within you into the world, so that all the world will see that the kingdom of God and his Christ has come. I recall when, uh, when I was a much younger man, boy, I played a lot of rugby in uh, South Africa, and I played it under the searing heat in the southern African sun, and we'd practice for hours, and the sun would just beat down on us relentlessly. And then there'd come this moment where the coaches would say, okay, boys, you can go and drink. And hundreds of us would run up to just a few kind of rows of taps, and we'd kind of fight each other to get to the taps, and then we'd kind of greedily just slake down our thirst by taking in as much water as we possibly could, as quickly as we could. But because we'd got so hot and dry, it it never really satisfied. It was like like rain that falls on very hard ground after a, a long period of dryness where the ground has just become rock solid. We had this, didn't we, at the start of July? And instead of saturating the ground, it just kind of runs off it. After a period of intense dryness and dehydration, drinking down the 
the first water source we could find just gave us a bloated and sore stomach, and minutes later, we'd become thirsty again. And Jesus is standing up here, and he's essentially saying, there is no other water that will satisfy. Up until now, you've been drinking from the wrong source. Whatever the world has held up and offered for your hydration and your satisfaction can only ever give you temporarily what you think you need. It'll be like that rain that falls on hard ground and just runs off. And if you keep drinking from the wrong source, you'll become bloated and pained. It will not satisfy. In fact, you'll just bloat and bloat on the wrong kind of water until it kills you. I am the only source of true water. If you are thirsty, come to me and drink and be satisfied. If that's you, you'll know it because... As I'm speaking, you'll probably be reflecting on all the things that you are doing and the places that you are going to satisfy that inner ache for something deeper, for meaning, for purpose, for love, for acceptance. Maybe you're drinking from the wrong source. Maybe you're trying to slake your thirst like I was, overindulging at the wrong source. It feels like fresh water. It tastes like fresh water. It promises much, but you're realizing that it's not doing the trick. And time and time again, you find yourself bloated on the wrong thing and in pain and still thirsty. Jesus is saying, there is a solution to this problem for you, for your children, for your family, for your community, for the city, for your nation, for the world, for all people, for all time. Come to me and drink. Partake of all that I am. I give it to you freely. Ask me. I'll come to you in your need, in your dehydrated need, in your pain, in your searching, in your striving, in your desperation, in your depression, in your anxiety. Come to me. Drink. Nothing else will satisfy. It's groundbreaking. Jesus is the fulfillment of the water ceremony. But he's doing something else here as well. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, remember. The people are remembering their 40-year their wilderness wanderings, their, their time in the desert. Jesus is saying, all that the ceremony is meant to represent is found in me. Drink from me. Come to me, and therefore, your wilderness wandering is also now over. Your time in the desert has concluded. God has come to you again, just like he did in the wilderness. God has come to you again. I am he, and I declare your wilderness wandering over. He's saying, just as we're here, gathered to commemorate God's provision to you in a time of wilderness... I am God's provision to you now that brings an end to your wilderness wandering. This is crucial to understand. Jesus is saying, all who believe in me, all who follow me, all who love me, all who metaphorically drink from me, their wilderness wandering will be over. Their exile will be over. Their time in the desert will be over. Gateway, that's so important for us to grasp today. If you're a wilderness wanderer, maybe far from Jesus, maybe never known Jesus, maybe you say you know Jesus and you come to church and you read your Bible and you go through the motions, but 
deep down you're, you're really not sure. Maybe it feels a little bit like that, that dusty land in the desert in your heart and you've never felt the quickening and the power and the presence of God's Holy Spirit welling up within you and, and calling you to authentic life with him. All of those things are a type of wilderness wandering, a type of desert existence, if you like. That can change today. That's what Jesus offers. Come and drink from him today, and he can bring an end to your desert existence, to your wilderness wandering. When I came to Jesus first, age 24, I came with many tears. That uh, often happens when you first discover Jesus. I'm, I'm not a man easily moved to tears. But when I came to Christ and recognized my poverty of spirit and my, my spiritual dryness, when I considered the mess that I'd made of relationships and the stuff that I'd done to try and find the good life, the places I'd been, the distances I'd traveled. I'd traveled so much of the world. I'd made money. I'd attained a successful career by the time I was 24, all in search of some kind of self-validation, an answer that would bring me inner peace. When I came to Christ and realized that all of that stuff was a wilderness wandering and that my time in the desert, my time of wandering, was now over, that Jesus had called an end to my wilderness wandering, I came with tears of gratitude and with songs of joy. That's what we were doing earlier on this morning. And that same promise is for you today. Yeah. My family and I were, um, were re recently watching that film. I don't know if you've seen this, The Theory of Everything. Uh, if you've never watched it, it's the film with Eddie Redmayne about the life of Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking may be the most influential scientific mind of the past 75 years. He tried, as of so many, to find a, a theory that explains everything, all the forces, how all the forces of the universe exist and, and behave and where they kind of all came from and how it all holds together. Millions and millions of man hours have been given to this project. PhD dissertations that will just run down the street, books, calculations, all trying to work out how it all happened and how it works. A theory for everything. And as we sat there and, and we watched together, we kind of came to this realization, chuckled, that Stephen Hawking and others just like him, brilliant scientific minds throughout history, have failed to note what would be plainly obvious to any of our kids in Sunday school this morning. The answer to the theory of everything is God. He creates, he brings life. He made the quark, he made the atom, he did it in the first days of creation as he spoke creation out and his word spoken out continues to be the cause of how everything is maintained, how everything, every atom, every quark, every single part of your life and circumstance holds together. And his word, his life-giving word, is the Son. It's Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God. He is the totality of all that God would say to humanity. He perfectly narrates God and all his ways and all his plans. That's why the whole Bible points to him. You want to know the Father? You want to know God? Look at Jesus. And Scripture tells us this. It's Colossians 1. <laughs> Love this flow of logic. Colossians 1, verse 15. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16. 
For in him all things were created. Good news, Gateway. Verse 17, and in him all things hold together. Everything was made by him. Everything was made for him. Everything is held together in him. And every other type of striving to, is, is to wander about in the wilderness, to drink from the wrong source. Colossians 1 goes on, verse 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Rest in that. Look at, look at what this says. You, you used to be lost in the desert, thirsty, alienated from God. But the one who made all things and in whom all things hold together, that one has done something about this problem. He's been to the cross. He's shed his blood for you. He died so that you didn't need to. And he now declares you holy, without blemish, free from accusation. You can walk from here today free from accusation. Your wilderness wandering has been ended. Jesus declares your wilderness wandering over. If you are thirsty or unsatisfied or, or restless, there's a reason for that. Listen to him as he whispers to you, as he beckons you. Oh, are you thirsty? Are you searching around? Are you in a desert? Is nothing hitting the spot? Are you frustrated? Have you come to the end of yourself? Are you dry? He is the Lord who fulfills the Feast of Tabernacles by saying that all you'll ever need, every provision uh, is met and is found in me. Come drink of me. And as you do, I declare your wilderness wandering over. Come, all who are thirsty, drink. Come, all you who have no money, come and buy and eat from me for free. Isn't that good news? What could be better news than this? Now, this, this is good news for us today. But Jesus is always pointing us to a greater and a higher reality. Things that are not just temporal, satisfying only for today, but he points us to something of his eternal promises for us too. Here's what I think he'd want us to remember today as we consider this passage. We've already seen that Jesus' purpose in the earth is to bring together everything that is broken. All things hold together in him. And his desire is that all would come to him and be saved. Because the way the whole story of humanity ends is in the establishment, once again, of a city garden where we will live in perfection with our God forever. All who have come and received this free drink of life from Jesus will be in that place. And in that place, the new Jerusalem, we will see again a return to Eden and from that place, that holy city, water flows, the waters of the river of life, and the sea, the, the metaphorical sea of chaos and separation from God, which would have been so well understood by the readers of these passages in the first century, that sea will be battered back for all time. The chaos of life outside of God will be dealt with forever. Because in that place, there will be no broken thing, no tears, no pain, no suffering, no death, no separation. Let's read Revelation 21 and 22. These are the final chapters of the whole Bible as we're brought together with God in this heavenly city forever. This is Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the new earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
Chapter 22, verse 1 to 5. Look at the name of this chapter, by the way. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb, Jesus, will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. This is our destiny. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Just like how they remembered the harvest, that citrus fruit that they raised up at the Feast of Tabernacles, one day a trumpet will sound again, And Jesus will return for his harvest. And the sea's chaos and separation will be dealt with and removed forever. And like the temple at Tabernacles, we will shine like the sun and we will drink from ever-flowing waters of life forever. It's pretty extraordinary stuff, Gateway. And the provocation to us is this. Get to this water and drink. Get to Jesus and drink. You want to beat back the chaos of the seas in your life? Come drink. You want to end your thirsty wilderness strivings for peace and acceptance? Come drink. Come and quench that thirst. You want to know God's provision and plan for you? You want to know the meaning of life? You want to experience it in all its vivid, technicolor, IMAX fullness and see clearly for the first time? Come and drink. Life is difficult, it's thirsty, it's chaotic, and it's a wilderness, but not with our God, not with Jesus. He stands out over the crowd, and he cries out over the noise, let everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. In, uh, in just a moment, we'll take the Lord's Supper. We'll eat and, and drink as a symbolic gesture of our response to Jesus' invitation, to the invitation of Isaiah 55, come all who are thirsty. All of you who have no money, come anyway. Come buy and eat, even if you have nothing to offer. In fact, especially if you have nothing to offer, come. He has everything you need, and he wants you to come to him. He's got what you need, and he wants to embrace you and give you all that he has and to satisfy your inner thirst and to end your desert wandering and to restore you. Isn't this good news? Isn't this a good invitation? Why don't we stand together? Let's pray. Jesus, I do so thank you for this incredible gospel, the gospel of John, which tells us at one level just the plainness of what you were doing day by day as you wandered around villages and towns, went to a temple, went to a festival, and at another level points to a deep reality of all that you are, the water of life, the satisfaction of our souls, the one who draws us in out of the chaos and brings us into your presence, tears the temple curtain open and says, No one need be outside anymore. All can come now. Jesus, I thank you so much for that. I thank you that in you, even this morning, in whatever state we find ourselves, we can come, we can drink, we can partake of you. 
and we can be satisfied in you. We can find relationship with you. Thank you that you're pointing us to a greater reality, that there will be a day when the trumpet sounds and you'll gather up your church and we'll live with you for all time in an Eden restored and water will flow from your throne like it flowed down the stairs at the temple and we'll drink from it and we'll live forever in relationship and joy and peace with our Christ. Lord, I thank you for all these things. Amen. Oh,